Hello and welcome back to Learning Curve, a podcast of the United States Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Michael Caputo, Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs here at the department. Um, the purpose of the Learning Curve is to introduce you to the people who are working on your behalf, on behalf of the American taxpayer, uh, during a pandemic, but also uh, every single day of the year, every other year, uh, when pandemics aren't rampaging across the entire planet. The uh, Department of Health and Human Services has a lot of duties that we uh, we partake in uh, in order to help you, your family, your loved ones. One of those in particular is uh, Lance Robertson, who's Administrator and U.S. Assistant Secretary for Aging. Uh, in fact, uh, Lance is responsible for the Administration for Community Living, among uh, so many things involved there. Welcome, Lance. Thanks for coming. Hey, thanks so much, Michael. Glad to be on. You know, the one thing I find very interesting here is this is not a, this is not a, you know, an elite administration. Um, we have an administration of a president who's a billionaire that actually has people who have experience uh, and and real perspective on the issues. And your service as the uh, U.S. Assistant Secretary for Aging uh, is one I think that's a feature. Uh, I, I mean, you were raised by your grandparents, weren't you? That's correct. In Oklahoma, not like, you know, downtown D.C. You're not a, an animal of the swamp, but raised by your grandparents in Oklahoma. Uh, does that add to your devotion to your duties serving the aging across the United States? Oh, undoubtedly. And um, I will also say that not only in Oklahoma, but in rural Oklahoma. So we were really out there. Uh, lots of uh, Oklahoma, as many know, are pretty rural. And where I grew up, I really had the opportunity to uh, just draw very closely to my grandparents. They certainly influenced my life personally and professionally. And uh, undoubtedly, my career choice to become a gerontologist was tied to I think in a big way, um, the love that I had for uh, my grandparents and just the recognition that so many older adults do so much to continue to make this country great. So how does, do they, do they influence your job particularly? I mean, they're, I know, listen, I was raised in many ways by my grand, grandparents. My parents, I, I was lucky enough to have them in my life, uh, but they dropped us off at the farm a lot. And, uh, I can tell you, at the most important times of my life, my grandparents have come to me uh, during their life and after their life. Uh, the memories that they leave and the mark they left on me. My grandmother was the most religious person in our family. Um, and, uh, you know, my other grandmother and my father's side taught me how to make uh, Italian gravy. Uh, both of these things are very important to me, church and pasta. And how did your grandparents leave a mark on you? Both of them were just so humble, and they were real people. And uh, grandfather, as an example, was a World War II veteran, only went through fourth grade formally, uh, but also, I think, just so committed to high integrity and to making sure that he raised me in a way, both modeling and then directly, that would prove to be a, a person uh, worthy. And, um, you know, I, I don't think either of them ever had any anticipation of uh, what I might do career-wise. I will say I was the first in my family to ever go to college and um, really had that opportunity uh, with their support uh, to make that happen and then to look at career choices and early on thought again this is a career path that made sense it took me down a public servant path that um, i really enjoyed uh, rural oklahoma was your were your grandparents on a farm 
We were. 160-acre farm. Yes, sir. Wow. What, what were you guys growing? A variety of things. Grandpa was kind of a jack of all trades, so we did a little bit of crop production along with um, some livestock and it just uh, depend on it on what floated his fancy so we had all it's kinds amazing. of livestock the, the, infu- the influence they have it is us, hasn't it? And, and you know that kind of led to you long before this you you founded the gerontology institute at the oklahoma state university what was how did you get to that that's that's a real fundamental and interesting project Oh, and in hindsight, loved, loved being part of that. So I, out of school, went to work for Oklahoma State University, the land grant. Out of school? Where did you go? Oklahoma Oklahoma State University. Yeah, I went to school at Oklahoma State, and then out of of school went straight to work there, and that is the uh, state's land grant institution. So I had an opportunity really early on to evaluate what might be some real academic opportunities on campus. We had kind of a multidisciplinary program at the time, which kind of just meant things were patched together. So we created the Gerontology Institute, uh, both for academic and then also extracurricular purposes. And really, we were proud of the accomplishments we had during my roughly uh, 12 years there as an administrator. Well, and how did that lead you toward this? So toward this position at HHS. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, everything is connected. I think that's the beauty of life, Michael. Um, You know, I finished my 12 or so years at Oklahoma State and was asked by a sitting governor uh, for Oklahoma at the time, uh, Brad Henry, if I would be interested in being the state's director of aging services. Uh, Certainly that was an opportunity that I wanted to take advantage of, knowing I could help influence and direct the state in in its um, honoring of older adults. So I did that then for 10 years. Uh, sitting in that role when the 2016 election occurred and um, a number of national leadership opportunities, I think, had created some buzz around uh, what what would strong candidates, who would some strong candidates be. So I think I emerged and had a lot of people, I want to say several hundred people, Michael, that wrote the president and others saying, hey, if, if uh, the time comes and you're ready to make an appointment for assistant secretary for aging, this is a guy that really believes in um, how we can best do that. It's interesting. Plus, um, it came to my attention when I was preparing for this interview that you're a veteran of the United States Army. Yes, sir. Uh, Army, enlisted, uh, officer? No, no. I was, I was enlisted. And, so you uh, worked for a living? I worked for a living. Yeah, That's right. Too. I was uh, 25th Infantry. Okay, very good. Where did you serve? I actually stayed um, on the Army Reserve side with 95th Battalion. Uh, we did a lot of um, general advocacy, advocate corps and just some other general admin work. Well, I mean, so much of the uh, our our nation's defense now falls to National Guard and reserves. Right, that's right. Um, you know, uh, uh, I, I've actually been astonished at how many people with military backgrounds, people in the military who are here in the Humphrey Building with us, from HHS headquarters. Uh, sometimes I think we have more camouflage than we have uh, seersucker running around here. You know, certainly more more camouflage than pinstripes. Um, does it help you uh, with your military experience uh, to interact with the military that we're working with during the pandemic and also the public health service and such that you work with uh, on a regular basis with or without a pandemic? Uh, I think to some degree, of course, it helps me appreciate their cadence, um, certainly some of the lingo. And as we deal with the pace, and I love the pace in which the Army and mil- well, the military individuals assigned here, their pace is, is to be appreciated. And I love that. You know, it's rapid fire, it's deliverables the next day. And again, I think that um, the way the military traditionally operates really is a good model for all of us in public service. It is. You know, the Administration for Community Living brings together, a lot of our listeners don't know, it brings together the Administration on Aging, 
the Administration on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities and the uh, HHS Office on Disability. Uh, three very, very important units here at uh, Health and Human Services. And this, of course, is the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. This, just a few days ago. Um, and I can tell you, I, I was in the United States Congress uh, when the Americans with Disabilities Act was uh, was passed. I, I wasn't elected. I was serving as a staff member. But I was at the uh, the television and radio uh, uh you know, uh, newsroom uh, that's run by the House side. And it was a big day, a very, very big day. There was a lot of debate on this. It was a huge and heavy, heavy lift. Um, and I actually set up the press conference for the Speaker of the House uh, to celebrate the passage of the, uh, uh, the ADA. And we knew then that it was going to have a huge impact on the lives of Americans with disabilities. In fact, my, my best friend from Big Tree, uh, which is where the Buffalo Bill Stadium is, um, is uh, has been disabled since we were kids. And, you know, I have I noticed a remarkable difference in the, uh, on his quality of life before and after the ADA. After the ADA kind of grew in and, and got, got momentum and, you know, enabled him to, to, to enjoy life just like every other American does. I saw how it changed my friend Chucky's life. How has ADA uh, changed America? Well, I think undoubtedly, Michael. And again, I was 19 when it passed, but I do recall it happening. Um, I think it was our—I think it was our civics, uh, our civics class instructor who said, "Hey, folks, even though you're young at the moment, you really need to pay attention to this." And uh, fast forward now, almost 30 years, and I work directly in supporting the ADA. But no, you're right, Michael. I mean, that was such a historic uh, civil rights um, um, piece of legislation and so historic in so many ways. And of course, for us at ACL, it just absolutely supports our mission um, of, you know, helping people uh, to live independently and to be fairly included um, in the community. It's, it's interesting because it, uh, Americans with disabilities have difficulty every moment of their lives. And oftentimes, especially before the ADA, the government stands in their way. Um, I saw how it affected Chucky, my friend Chucky, who, ha- who suffers from brittle bone disease and um, has uh, been through so many operations, and he's 60 years old now, confined to a wheelchair, has lost an arm and a leg, has suffered cancer because of all the different uh, you know, treatments he's had over his life. Um, and he was about to have his other leg amputated, uh, be- at least partially amputated, because of this bone disease and how it eventually had 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 impacted his remaining leg and it came to him that he had to have an uh, an operation and he had to have it immediately cuz covid was coming and i had not joined the department yet and um i said look you know you got to go in get it done get right out and make sure you don't go into a treatment center because nursing homes are an issue during covid right and, of course, he had some complications with his surgery, and they tried to put him in a nursing home. And they treated him differently than other patients. Medical professionals treated him differently than other patients because he was disabled. Um, he was on his own. His parents are gone. And there was only us friends of his who were trying to help coordinate his care. I thought I saw a different level of treatment of this man because he was disabled. But there are other things. For example... 
Um, I, I had a, a, a friend of mine write me a message to the, the other day. I wanted to read that to you. I'm writing to you today about the enormous cost of renting a mobility van. Uh, my oldest brother has ALS and is non-ambulatory wheelchair-bound. When he has to go to the doctor, his family is forced to pay $180 per day to rent a mobility van that my brother, my other brother, drives for him. Yet the cost of renting a car can be as low as 20 30 bucks a day. How do you help these people? Isn't that a tr- – that is – I mean, I've experienced that with Chucky. Well, luckily in western New York, we have a lot of uh, uh, services. But I think in some areas, like where this person is writing from, they don't. And they have to actually rent a van. That's 200 bucks. Right. Right. How, 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 how does ADA read on something like that? Well, so again, really what we're trying to do through the ADA is to just make sure people do have access. Uh, that does vary throughout the country, um, agreeably. You know, for people that qualify, as an example, Michael, for the paratransit service, you know, that's a big thing that I know helps with, with the transportation struggle. And, you know, in terms of, of access, regardless of how you define it, if you can't really fulfill transportation needs, right. um, whether or not somebody can access a medical doctor's office or anything else becomes irrelevant if they can't actually get there. So for us, you're right. I mean, transportation is such a huge deal. We fund a lot of program work around transportation, particularly targeting how we can help serve people with disabilities. And we also at ACL, we fund the nationwide ADA resource centers. So uh, folks like the the individual you just read about or Chucky or anybody can reach out to one of our ADA resource centers as well and say, hey, listen, I'm in Wellston, Oklahoma. Do you have any sort of services that might help me? And those ADA centers, again, that we fund are there to help provide those resources. And I would sure hope that as a country we continue to mature in what we're able to offer those individuals. Um, Again, acknowledging that some parts you're going to have some service deserts. That's not intentional. That's just the reality of life. But um, to the extent that we can, yeah, we're proud of the work of those ADA, those 10 ADA resource centers nationally. Um, we have a lot further to go, don't we? Uh, we do. Uh, to fulfill the promise of the ADA. Sure. Absolutely. What more do we have to achieve? Well, so I, I think, again, it, and, and thankfully, Michael, I've seen just in the last decade or so a real attitude change because we, we I think, are slowly transitioning from a, hey, we must do this to a, my gosh, if we can make sure that our friends and colleagues with disabilities are able to be fully integrated, we all win. They win, we win, society wins. So to me, it's a real um, exciting proposition that for a lot of the discussions we're having and the things that we're launching, um, some of the innovation, all really is uh, going to point towards people being able to be fully integrated. And that's what they deserve. That's what they want. That's what we would want. Uh, for those that are fortunate enough to, to maybe live without a disability. So um, to me, it's it's encouraging to see the direction we're going. And it's now being driven less from an advocacy, hey, you better do it or we'll sue you. Now it's being more driven from a, wow, where's the value? Here it is. We see the return. It's interesting how uh, how the ADA has sprung up a lot of creative uh, ideas. Uh, I, for a time, I worked with uh, a catamaran called Impossible Dream. Um, uh, it was uh, home ported in Miami Beach, and uh, I, I I had my boat uh, next to theirs. I lived on a tugboat back in those days. Long before I didn't cut my hair, had a long beard. You wouldn't recognize me. Um, in a lot of ways, the president saved me from that wonderful life. But <laughs> <laughs> it was right next to us. Impossible Dream was just like sixty-five, seventy foot catamaran that was outfitted 
to be sailed across the ocean by a person in a wheelchair. And, uh, in fact, it had been sailed across the ocean by a man who had it built for himself, and then he donated it to an organization in Miami, and, and they take their whole mission is to teach people in wheelchairs how to sail. Wonderful, and that it's, it's so. And I started working with them, helping them uh, publicize. And the captain of the boat is a real of the ship is a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And every summer they go up the coast from Miami to Maine and come back down. And every single port of call they organize for people to come out for sailing lessons. That's correct for people in wheelchairs. And they couldn't do that. They could not do that if it weren't for the ADA. Because simple enough. People in wheelchairs couldn't get on the dock. That's right. That's you know, right. and with with the ADA making those things possible, um, the extension of it was that somebody who wanted to donate a, a, a boat to to help people learn how to live a, a, a fulfilling life was made possible. And it's these small little things that make ADA worth celebrating. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'll say, Michael, you know, preceding the ADA was the ABA which and is the uh, Barriers Act, because as you just pointed out, sometimes it's the simplest things, you know, a rise or a sidewalk cut or something that just helps somebody with mobility issues. So I also chair the U.S. Access Board, and that's the U.S. Access Board's focus is around barrier removals, particularly for um, properties that are federally funded. So you're right. To me, it's just really um, heartwarming to see how some of the smallest things, really low-cost sort of adjustments, can make such a big difference in the mobility and um, accessibility for people with disability. Mobility and accessibility problems uh, come upon all of us. You better believe it. It does. I mean, I remember <laughs> Impossible Dream a couple of years ago was heading up to uh, one of their ports of call was Kennebunkport, Maine. And, of course, Kennebunkport, you think about the Bush family. Um, and uh, my former boss, uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, at that time, was in the uh, the twilight of his life, and he was wheelchair bound because of his health challenges, aged, etc. But completely and absolutely devoted, devoted to the sea, a man w- who was probably born in a boat. And uh, I was able to get them in touch with the Impossible Dream. I wasn't there, but I caught photos of the wheelchair bound former president sailing this boat. And I saw in his face how happy he was. He, he passed on not, not long after. That was probably the last time he was at sea, a man who was practically born in a boat. Um, and, again, made possible through the ADA. That's right. You know? and, and your point, Michael, is a great one about President Bush. So often, you know, we were talking about the evolution of this, of this um, conversation around accessibility with um, longevity now and people getting older. So many now are um, healthy until a certain age, and then they encounter a disability. So it's no longer about, oh, those individuals with disabilities. It's kind of about all of us now, this nexus between not just people who have either acquired or were born with a disability, but now people who are aging and acquiring disabilities. So we're talking about a hugely growing number of people that um, really, again, as the president obviously exemplified, love those opportunities and shouldn't be prevented from enjoying them. Uh, that makes me uh, uh, think of the ACL. Um, the, uh, uh, this, this serves over 140 million Americans. That's an amazing number. Of, that's that's uh, nearly half of America. That's crazy. Nearly half of America. To me, it's, 
Uh, I actually see it at work in my my hometown in East Aurora, New York, this little village I live in, which is the most wonderful place on the planet to live. And I, and I have a little experience with the planet. Uh, ACL uh, and their programs with the state of New York are funding uh, congregate living situations for people with disabilities uh, who are, you know, with the, with the intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, and the, all these people who live in these homes um, are such welcome members of our community. Uh, they spend a lot of time outside, walking together, and they're all tremendously happy uh, because I can tell you, these houses, I've seen them inside and out. They're nice homes, and these people live good lives. Uh, we look back in history, that wasn't always true. And these federal programs are actually really, I mean, if there is one duty for the federal government beyond the national defense, boy, is this one of them, isn't it? And it's a simple one. I yeah. mean, let's just be honest. It's often low cost but high impact. Um, and, you know, our largest program is serving meals to older adults, but um, honestly, though, so much of what we do at ACL, again, low cost, high return. I, Meals on Wheels, for yes, example. Yes, all right. I've, I've told more people than you can imagine, Michael, that, you know, that 6 or $7 daily cost for a meal keeps people out of nursing homes. And it really does sure because it, it staves off food insecurity. That's one of many examples. Prevents falls, prevents social isolation, so many other issues. How, how has the ACL program changed due to COVID-19? Great question. So, of course, like so many of us, I think our initial posture was one of, hey, how can we still serve people but yet be safe? And it didn't take long for our network. We have about 22,000 entities that we fund across the country. They're so resilient and they're so committed to their mission that for a lot of them, they quickly pivoted and, um, you know, were able to create service mechanisms that were both um, efficient but also safe. So take meals, again, one of the biggest services we offer. As you could imagine, they um, quickly, quickly moved into a posture of delivering meals to inbound, quarantined seniors and doing so in a very safe way in terms of both the passing on of the meal but also the wellness check, you know, being able to see them through the window and just making sure Mrs. Smith is okay. All of those are just extra values that we're so proud of with our programs, um, and it doesn't stop just at that program. So many of so many of the other services we offer about 36 programs at ACL, and you know a lot of them, of course, pivoted to doing their work virtually. So one that I think is um, really underappreciated is our um, chronic disease self-management program. How do we teach people with a chronic disease to manage through that safely, and in some cases become much healthier? All of that programming work went virtual. So. In yeah. so many cases, I think we're still able to deliver a very large portion of the services to older adults and people with disabilities despite COVID. Administration for community living, uh, that just evokes the idea, makes me ask the question. Sure. Are, are, are the people who are involved in these congregate situations, the people who uh, enjoy the benefits of uh, the programs supporting intellectual and develop, developmental disabilities, are, are, are they safe in COVID? I believe they are because obviously, as CDC has pointed out, you know, quarantining is, and certainly early on, quarantining was one of the best options for people with high vulnerabilities, which happened to be a lot of older adults and people with disabilities. So, right. we were part of those initial conversations. I do think, though, as we've learned, Michael, in the in the recent weeks and months, there is a balance because we don't want people to simply quarantine to avoid the virus, but that cost of quarantining, in terms of their health, both physically, and mentally ends up just becoming um, so much more pervasive and problematic. I love the Secretary's message. You know, it's not 
You know, it's not about, um, I can't remember exactly how it's he stated. It's not health versus the economy. It's yes, health versus there you health. go. Yeah. See, and that's exactly what we experienced, Michael, with our populations. Um, you know, we needed to begin encouraging them, and we have done so. You know, this multi-month quarantining, at some point you've got to start in a safe way, uh, really reintroducing yourself to regular activities, things that really bring you joy. Um, you got to be able to see those grandkids. Now, maybe, again, it's socially distanced or through a window if necessary, but just, again, don't don't let um, don't let COVID so suppress you that um, you lose your identity and who you are. There are ways to balance all that. I'm talking to Lance Robertson, who is the administrator and assistant secretary for aging, administrator of the administration for community living. Um, these are the core programs of the human services part of health and human services. During COVID, during a pandemic, when we're, you know, running and gunning and, and, and moving and, and, and trying to make things happen for the American people, trying to, to defeat the virus, um, we can't lose sight of the HS part of HHS. And I, I'm wondering, I mean, this has got to be, I mean, you founded the Institute at, the, at, at, at Oklahoma State University, right? Um, you've been involved in this kind of work for all of your life, uh, certainly since you graduated from Oklahoma State University. Uh, you know, I think of all my years with my grandparents. I know you do too. Um, I miss them every day. Right. But, you know, you are serving everybody's grandparents sure. in a lot of ways, and so many of them are at risk because of COVID. Right now we know for a fact, we've learned a lot in six months, but the one thing we know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that our grandparents are the ones that are most vulnerable, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. Particularly those in congregate settings, as we found out. Those nursing home rates, as we know, uh, thanks to, again, CMS's leadership, we're trying to really tackle that. But older adults with those health vulnerabilities and in a congregate setting, boy, that's a bad duo. It is. And as we move to reopen and defeat the virus in parallel, because as the, as the president has said and, and, and Secretary Azar has said, we have to do both. We have to reopen safely and sensibly, but we also have to protect, protect the most vulnerable. And the most, most vulnerable at this point are, are people that you serve every single day. Um, how do we do it? I mean, my, my kids, 6 and 7 and 18 years old, um, they 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 can't go hug their grandpa and grandma, sure. and my 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 grand my my father and my mother, uh, they're they're not in congregate living situations. They're living on their own. When we go see my father, when we see my mother, they can't even run up and hug them. Sure. I mean, how do we protect them? How do we protect them? I mean, if we're going to reopen safely and sensibly and protect the most vulnerable, this reads right on your client base. Absolutely. And I think our consistent message throughout the pandemic, Michael, has been, hey, folks, listen, let's just be honest. Short-term sacrifice, long-term gain. Yes, correct. No hugging, no physical contact with grandparents, particularly those who have um, some comorbidities. But that, that's, we all pray that that's only going to be for a short time longer. And then, um, you know, once the virus is gone and we've been able to eradicate it through some of the vaccine work that's happening, hugs can abound. Right. But uh, in the meantime, let's just all respect that the last thing you'd want to do is inadvertently um, cause, you know, an older loved one who's highly vulnerable to contract the disease. And you can do so, as we all know, very un unknowingly 
through that contact. So if we can just avoid the contact, follow all the measures, the safety measures, uh, again, I think most people will just appreciate it's it's worth um, not being able to see each other or if you are seeing each other, be socially distanced. That's all worth it because this time is going to continue to go by and hopefully in the very, very near future you can return to what was normal for your family. But it's so hard. I mean, it is. I look at the look on my my uh, my father's face. Sure. And the look on my children's face when they can't hug. Right. It's a fundamental it's like oxygen. You know, you can tell these people are heartbroken. Sure. But how do we support them while they suffer like this? How do we support them? Yeah, I think again just um you know, a reminder of of for me, as one example, what we've been encouraging people to really consider is, um, despite no physical touch, what we've encouraged families to appreciate is this actually is an opportunity for more frequent contact. And if you think about pre-COVID, so often, you know, you didn't see grandma and grandma, but maybe every couple of months. Well, now you really ought to lean in and actually go see them more, even if you're not able to physically touch them. Or if you can't, if you're not geographically close, you know, make those phone calls or texts or FaceTime or whatever you can do. But what we've encouraged in terms of trying to create balance is increased frequency, contact frequency. Um, So again, I think that for a lot of older adults, we've heard back directly from them saying, thank you, because now I hear from my family so much more than I used to. And it wasn't purposeful, but life can make us pretty busy. And I know that for non-COVID periods of time, so many older adults experienced isolation that now is being, um, in some ways, addressed because the family is paying a lot more closer attention because of COVID. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. You know, I think my kids do see more of their grandfather, but they just don't see him so close up. That's interesting. I suppose the frequency of contact is is something that helps. Uh, and and but uh, man, it's tough. Yeah, it is tough. It is tough. I'm I'm, I'm sure over at uh, uh, as assistant secretary for aging, you're hearing these stories anecdotally every single day. You know, this is really important stuff that you do. It's not just for the aging, but also for the intellectual and development, developmentally dis- disabled. Um, the people who are uh, disabled and how they deal with their daily lives. What is the most rewarding thing uh, about your work? I know it's not an easy question. It's not only because, Michael, I just am am in love with what I do. So it's hard for me to really um, prioritize what would be the most um, enjoyable aspect. Uh, You know, I'm really grateful for the team we have. Uh, At ACL, we're small but mighty. Um, relatively um, new. As, as you pointed out, we were birthed in 2012. But our team, though, is so committed. So even during COVID, and by the way, 41% of our workforce are vulnerable. Either they're, wow. either they're older or work with a disability because we have so many colleagues with disabilities at ACL. So sure. this has really impacted them personally as well as professionally. And yet their commitment has continued to be so, so very high. Uh, so that's one benefit. I love when, um, thanks to like your podcast and other opportunities where we can reach out to America and just remind them, okay, COVID often has been clinically discussed, but let's talk about social impact. Let's talk about what it really means each and every day relationally and in terms of your uh, mental health as well. I'm so proud of the doctors we have out there, but that focus is clinical. 
And, yeah. you know, for a lot of the average Americans, that's good information, but it's not as valuable nor as heartwarming and nor does it affect their day to day. So like you've you and I've discussed, you know, how can we increase um, contact so the social isolation doesn't become a problem? You know, how can we make sure that folks um, can remain mentally healthy? And we do a lot of work with SAMHSA and some of our other colleagues on the human service side to help address that as well. All of that combined, I think, really makes it such rewarding work because we know each and every day um, through the programming, as you pointed out, roughly 140 million Americans that we, I like to say, represent, you know, in terms of older adults, people with disabilities, and family caregivers. I think so many of them are so grateful, even though they don't even know who we are, because we're not a direct service agency, which means all of our money goes to local level organizations that deliver the services, so they get all the credit, which is absolutely fine with me. But, uh, again, it's rewarding to see the success that our network has has had during COVID, and it's all due to their resiliency. I think the ADA obviously has been um, a cornerstone for that. You know, ADA was birthed and then has carried forward successfully because of the commitment and the resiliency of people to say, hey, it's not fair, nor is it right for people with disabilities to not be fully integrated and to feel that inclusion that they deserve. Uh, So for us, it's that fulfillment of a mission that – brings excitement each and every day. You know, uh, uh, I, I love doing these podcasts for not, not just because, uh, I like hearing my voice on, on the air. It's not, that's the, not the only reason it's one of the reasons, but people don't understand exactly what goes into all this. And I'm glad you spent time with, I'm with Lance Robertson, who is administrator and assistant secretary for aging. Uh, if there's one thing I, I could leave every listener with, I, it's very simple. Protect the elderly. That's really where we're at. We're going to reopen safely and sensibly, but the most important thing we can do is protect the elderly. Anybody with questions, where would they go? Where would they go on the web? Absolutely. Our website is excellent. It's one of the more navigatable federal websites you'll find. It is. It's acl.gov. So it's simple. It's easy to navigate. All the information you could ask for, I believe, is out there, both in terms of the more immediate COVID response information that people might find of value, but more importantly, the roughly three dozen programs we operate, all the good information is there to help either a citizen or maybe another public servant navigate what resources we offer. And again, we're we're here to serve uh, the American public. And as you pointed out, the, the goal for today is to continue to make sure that older adults and people with disabilities are safeguarded against this virus. We need to get through the pandemic, and then when we get back to the more normal state, um, we'll just continue to do what we do and rock it out. All right, Lance Robertson, Administrator and Assistant Secretary for Aging. Uh, it's, it's been a real pleasure. The Administration for Community Living is acl.gov, one of the best websites uh, out of HHS. Uh, there, sometimes these websites can be so dense with information. ACL.gov is eminently navigable. It's a really good website. Anybody has any questions, happy birthday to the Americans with Disabilities Act. 30 years old. And thank you, Lance Robinson. We'll be back next week here on Learning Curve. I'm Michael Caputo, Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs. Protect the elderly people. Thank you very much. Produced by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services at taxpayer expense.